Back in 2015, in the 2015 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions selected a player named Quandre Diggs in the sixth round of the NFL Draft. There are only seven rounds in the NFL Draft, and most players taken actually across the league don't stay in the NFL at all or very long. And especially if you were drafted in the lower rounds, the fifth, sixth, seventh round, it's unlikely that you'll make the team, much less make the team and maybe become a backup or a special teams player. Very few players taken in the sixth round, like Diggs was, become starters. But he did. Quandre Diggs became a starter for the Detroit Lions. First as a cornerback, and then they moved him to safety. And if you're not familiar with football, those are defensive positions. And he became not only a starter on the team, but they gave him a new contract just a little over a year ago. And he became a defensive captain for the Detroit Lions. And he was a good player for the years that he played for the Lions. But surprisingly, just a few weeks ago, on October 22nd, the Lions traded him to the Seattle Seahawks. And not for a first-round pick, or a second-round pick, or a third-round pick. They traded him and a seventh-round pick, so they gave up him and another draft pick for just a fifth-round pick in return, which is not a great trade for giving up a starting player who's a captain on your defense, especially one like Diggs, who's only 26 years old. Many Lions fans, like me, were surprised when they traded Quandre. The Lions' defense this year is epically bad, like historically bad. Like They're on pace to be the worst Lions defense that's ever taken the field, and that's really saying something. (laughs) And so when you trade one of your defensive starters from one of the worst units in football on defense, that's really quite a surprise. And so some of us really wondered what was going on here. Why would they give up a player that was contributing to the team? And in the weeks since then, there have been rumors that he wasn't playing as well as he had in the past, that maybe his off-season um, performance or his preparation for the season wasn't as good as usual. But this past week, the Detroit Free Press reached out to Quandre, and they got a quote from him. When they asked him why he was traded, here's what he said. I think it was more just a control thing. Them wanting to control the locker room, control the locker room, control voices in the locker room. There you see four times the word control was used. And so there was obviously some issue between Quandre Diggs, a Lions player, and maybe some of the other players that were friends with him or uh, players with him on defense and the leadership of the team, the head coach or the front office. And whatever the specifics were, Quandre Diggs was a player who had some authority in the locker room. He was a captain. He was someone who was apparently outspoken. He was apparently someone that other players looked up to. He had some level of authority. But somehow, and for some reason, his authority clashed with the established authority on the team. And I think this story illustrates an important point that we should begin our message this morning with, which is this. Somebody has authority in every situation involving people. 
put human beings together. And whether it's an official authority or an unofficial type of leadership, somebody is going to take charge. Someone is going to act with authority. In most situations, there's somebody or some collection of somebodies who have official authority. In the case of the lions, they have an owner, Martha Ford, and they have uh, people who have been hired. They have a team president, they have a general manager, they have a head coach, and they have other coaches. These are people who have official authority. They're the ones who are ultimately in charge. That's why they could ship a player that they had an issue with to another team, because they have the official authority. But often there's somebody without official authority who can gain unofficial authority. They can become actually very powerful, even though they don't have a particular designation of authority, even though they don't own the team or don't have a position like coach. Because of their play on the field, if we're talking about athletes, or because of their personal leadership characteristics or their own personal charisma or whatever reason, sometimes unofficial people accumulate authority. And problems happen in organizations. Problems happen in human beings and human relationships. When there is a struggle between and friction between the official authority and the unofficial authorities. This is where problems in human relationships and human organizations begin. Somebody has authority in every situation involving people. And in our passage of Scripture this morning, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is demonstrating authority. This began last Sunday. It began officially and in earnest, as we saw last Sunday, earlier in chapter 19, when Jesus made what is called his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus does certain things, and his disciples do certain things, that emphasize that he is presenting himself to the city of Jerusalem and ultimately to the nation of Israel as its king. And so while Jesus doesn't demonstrate authority in anything necessarily that he publicly did in his triumphal entry, everything about it was designed to emphasize, here is someone saying he is the Messiah. Here is someone saying he is a king. And in fact, the disciples who cheered Jesus on as he entered were saying, your king, this is, behold, your king comes to you. And, and so Jesus is um, presenting himself with authority. This morning, as we come to our passage for today, we see Jesus make an interesting choice about his authority. Instead of going to the place where political authority was held in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus goes somewhere else. Having entered the city as king, he doesn't head to the palace or to a fortress and try to demonstrate political or military authority. Instead, Jesus acts with authority in the religious realm. That's really the point of our passage this morning. Jesus has authority over how people worship. That's what we're to see in the sections of Scripture that we're reading in Luke chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20. Jesus is going to demonstrate authority over how people worship. Look with me, please, at Luke 19, beginning in verse 49, where it says, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den 
of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And these words, this opening part of this paragraph of Scripture that we're going to study together, we see Jesus exercising spiritual authority. And we see that the established spiritual authorities have some friction with it. They have some issues with it. And so as we look at how Jesus demonstrates authority, the first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus used his authority of, over worship after he entered Jerusalem as king. This is the first thing Jesus does after presenting himself as king to the people of Israel. He goes to the temple and says, I'm going to exercise spiritual authority first. And that's important to understand that there's a connection between the triumphal entry and what Jesus does here. Jesus has been to Jerusalem before. He's been to the temple before. Luke doesn't tell us that. We find that out actually from the Gospel of John, which gives us insight into the life of Jesus that we don't learn about much in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Jesus has been to Jerusalem before. He's been to the temple before. But things are very different this time. And that's because Jesus is exercising authority this time. Jesus is going to show who he is by what he does in the temple in this incident. And he begins demonstrating authority by doing this, by removing those who had abused their religious authority. Jesus exercised authority, and he did so by removing those who abused their religious authority. In verses 45 and 46, we see this. It says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. And you should understand that the temple that God uh, had, or the tabernacle that he had designed and given to the people, and then which was made into a permanent structure by David and others, by Solomon and others, I should say. This temple had different courts, and there was an outer court where Gentiles were allowed, and they could go no further. And in this area called the Court of the Gentiles, there were people who had set up tables, tables where they would sell sacrifices to people who came without bearing the animals they needed for their sacrifice, and people who would exchange money. In the Old Testament law, and I won't take time to take you there, the Bible describes a, a, a tabernacle coin. And the religious leaders interpreted this to mean that you were not to use the common coinage of the government in the temple of God. You were supposed to use value that only had value in God's temple itself. And so that means someone needed to create these coins and somehow they needed to be exchanged. And so the, this is what uh, was going on in this passage. There were people setting up, uh, who had set up tables to sell animals to those who needed them and to exchange the money. And if you think about it, if you can create your own coin, then you can essentially just take money from people because you can say whatever the coin is worth and the expense of you minting it is probably far less than whatever you say it's worth uh, in exchange for other coins. And as far as we know, the leadership of the priest, the high priest, is the one who benefited from all of this. They would mark up the cost of the animals. They would buy them on the open market and sell them for a greater cost than what they paid for them. And these coins, of course, were almost pure profit for the people of God. Again, you get to recycle them because you bring in the money, you give it to the temple, and the temple takes it right back out to the tables and exchanges it with the next guy. And so it's a nice racket they have going on here. 
And this has been going on for generations, perhaps. Well, Jesus comes along, and the first act he does as king, the first thing he does to demonstrate his authority is to kick all of these people out. That's what's going on in verses 45 and 46 when it says Jesus entered the temple courts. He began to drive out those who were selling. Jesus exercises authority, and he quotes scripture as he does it. We see in verse 46, it is written, okay, this is what Jesus says anytime he, well, not anytime, but many times when he quotes from God's word from the Old Testament. It is written, Jesus said, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The phrase, my house will be a house of prayer, is a quotation from Isaiah. And the phrase, den of robbers, is a quotation from Jeremiah. Jesus does a mashup here and puts these two phrases together. And as he is driving out these merchants, these people who are making money on the worship that God's people were attempting to bring, he quotes scripture, he quotes from God's Old Testament law to justify what he is doing and to explain why their sales of animals and why their exchange of money is improper for the place of God's worship. So Jesus goes about quoting scripture as he does this. But what is kind of unseen in this passage is that not only does Jesus quote scripture as he cleanses the temple of this sin, but he actually fulfilled scripture as he was doing it. Jesus quoted scripture and he fulfilled scripture in this act of spiritual authority. And let me show you the scripture that he fulfilled. We find it in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where the scripture says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And just stop for a minute and think about that phrase. Who is this messenger who will prepare the way before the Lord? Well, this is what John the Baptist said he was going to do. And remember, we're going to get to, he's going to come up in our next section in chapter 20. So just keep that in mind. That this passage of scripture is one of many that foretells a forerunner for Christ. But the passage goes on and says in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. This is Jesus. And he shows up to the temple. But notice what happens. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of, sinner, of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. All of these metaphors that talk about cleaning and purifying describe the coming of Messiah to the temple. And this is what Jesus is doing. The passage goes on and says, Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. Why was Jesus' first act after presenting himself as king to come to the temple and present himself as an authority over the worship? It's because the worship had moved away from true worship of God and it had become a system for minting money for the spiritually powerful for those who had the positions of authority. And just as God had prophesied long before, Jesus, the Messiah, came 
to cleanse the temple, to cleanse the house of God on earth of those who were using their authority to exploit those who came to worship. Jesus demonstrated his authority by removing those who abused their religious authority. But Jesus also used his authority in another way in our passage. And that is this. He taught authoritatively despite the disapproval of other human leaders. And this is where we see the tension between the established authority of the temple and Jesus, the one who looks like an interloper, the one who looks like he just injected himself as an authority without the official um, designation. Notice with me verse 47. It says, every day he was teaching at the temple. Here's what we are to understand. Christ has come to Jerusalem and he's presented himself as king. And he comes in and the first thing he does before he wants to do any worship or do any teaching is he wants to purify the temple because that's what prophecy demanded. And this is what God himself ought to do when he comes to his temple. But then day after day, Jesus arrives at the temple and he begins teaching the word of God. And as he is teaching, he is doing it in such an authoritative way that the people who have the positions of power, the people who hold the positions of authority, the ones who should have been directing what worship looked like in the temple and what teaching happened in the temple, they get upset about what Jesus is saying and doing. We read, continuing in verse 47, but the chief priests, all right, you understand that God had designated an entire um, tribe of Israel, the tribe of, of Levi, to have authority over the priesthood. And there was a hierarchy within this priesthood. These guys are at the top of the hierarchy. They are the chief priests, but they're not the only ones upset. The teachers of the law, these are other Levites who are not priests, but they've made their life's work to study the law of God and teach it to the people. And we're told the leaders among the people, this is probably people who are um, really more like town elders. Remember, all kinds of people have come to Israel for this week. It's, it's Passover week. And it's one of the times of year when God's people are commanded to come to the central sanctuary, to come to Jerusalem to worship. And so Jerusalem is just flooded with people from all over the nation of Israel. And all of these people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and even the town elders, are unhappy about Jesus acting the way that he's acting. They're unhappy about him throwing out the merchants who are making some of them some money. And they're unhappy about him just coming in every day and, you know, setting up his little pulpit, if he had one, and teaching God's word and doing it in, in the authoritative way in which Jesus normally taught. They're unhappy about this. So unhappy that the Bible tells us in verse 46 that these leaders among the people were trying to kill him. They, they saw that Jesus was exercising authority and they knew it was a threat to their authority. And so they're looking for a way to eliminate Christ. And yet they can't do it because verse 46 says this. Verse 48, I mean. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. They knew they would have a serious problem on their hands. If they did execute Jesus in the temple courts or if they stabbed him in the back as he was leaving... Jesus was never alone. He always had disciples with him. He brought throngs of disciples with him at his triumphal entry. There was no way for them to kidnap and kill Jesus without being observed by others. And they knew the moment they did, all of these people who were soaking up the words that he gave, who were hungering for the word of God and were taking it in day after day under his teaching, 
all of them would immediately form a mob against this hierarchy. And they would seek justice for taking Jesus out in this way. And so here we have a a classic clash between the one who has authority, not because he was voted into office or born into office like the priests were, but someone who has authority because he created everything. He is God, and he is Messiah, and he has come to do the work that needs to be done to redeem people from their sins and to create a kingdom for himself. And he has come authoritatively presenting himself as king. And now he's acting authoritatively over the worship of God's people. And those who hold the offices where they should have been in authority are very threatened by Jesus. And so what do they do? How do they handle this? What is their response to the way that Jesus has exercised authority? Well, they call him on the carpet, in a sense. They call him to account. And they want to know what the source of his authority is. And so that's why we come to chapter 20, verse 1, where the Bible isolates one of these days in which Jesus was teaching in the temple and tells us how the religious people tried to undermine his authority. Chapter 20, verse 1 says this, One day Jesus was teaching in the temple, teaching the people in the temple courts, and proclaiming the good news. The chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, this is the same crew that we just saw right at the, in the last verse of chapter 19, they came up to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? This is an opportunity for them to question the authority of Christ, to call into question and discredit, in fact, not only the things that he has done in cleansing the temple, And not only the teaching that he was giving day after day in the temple, but it was a way for them to call into question and call into credibility everything about his ministry, including the miracles that they had heard that he had done. They want to know, where did you get the authority? You're acting like you've got power here. Where did it come from? On what basis are you acting this way and acting like an authority? That's the question. And I'm going to give you the answer, even though it's it's going to break the tension that, uh, that, that, that could be created by holding the answer to the end. I'm going to do it for a purpose. Where did Jesus get this authority? Well, he's not going to answer. He refused to prove his authority to those who thought they had authority. See, this is the power struggle that's going on in chapter 20. These people who hold these positions are trying to get it back from Jesus, and Jesus will not bow to their attempts. He will not give in to what they want to do. And let's look at how Jesus goes about this. Because the question they have is pretty legitimate, it seems to me. The Levites were chosen by God to be priests, and so whatever hierarchy of priesthood they had was one that came directly from Scripture. And even their trading of coins had a scriptural basis to it. And so they have a legitimate claim to power. We're also told about the teachers of the law, and the Old Testament describes people who serve in this role as well. It was necessary for Israel's law to be taught. And this is what the priests were supposed to do when they weren't offering sacrifices and doing the other aspects of ministry in the temple. So these people have legitimate authority. They want to know where Jesus gets his legitimate authority. And so they ask him the question. Notice Jesus' response 
in verse 3, it says, he replied, I will also ask you a question. And this is weird to us, right? Like if a teacher calls on you in school, you don't try to normally turn the tables on her or him and say, well, let me ask you a question first. We don't operate that way. But apparently in the Old Testament methods of teaching, this was common. It was common for the rabbis when they were asked a question to ask a question back of the person asking them. I don't know why, if it was a way to sort of deflect the question and not answer it. But Jesus is is following kind of a tried and true and one that would have been acceptable to the people who called him into question. So he says in verse 2, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, when we read this, I don't know about you, but it looks like Jesus is pulling something way out of left field here. Where did John's, how does John's baptism figure into any of this? John's been dead for more than a year at this point. What does he have to do with any of this stuff? It looks like Jesus is trying to dodge the issue here. And you know how this is. You know how it is when, you know, you get uh, maybe pulled over for speeding and you try to change the subject and say, why did you pull over that guy in front of me? He was going faster than me, right? You're trying to change the subject. We do this when we're, when we're put under the microscope. Not that I've ever been stopped for speeding myself, but I, I, I would imagine that this is something someone might try to do, Right? We try to change the focus. We try to deflect blame. We try to change the subject when difficult questions are brought to us. And that's what it looks like Jesus is doing, but that's not what he's doing at all. As I told you already and quoted to you from Malachi chapter 3, God's word had prophesied not only this coming of Messiah, but the forerunner of Messiah, which John the Baptist was. And John the Baptist came preaching repentance and saying, show yourself to be repentant by being baptized. And so everyone who was baptized under the ministry of John was publicly proclaiming, I am repenting of my sins, and I am waiting for the coming Messiah. They were identifying with this movement that John started and that Jesus continued, this messianic movement for the coming of the Lord. And we know that these same groups of people, these people who had religious authority by birthright, or by whatever human means, we know they resisted the teaching of John too. And we also know that John's ministry not only authenticated Christ, because it was his job to to point attention to the Messiah, but the miracles Jesus has done also authenticated Jesus. It's not that Jesus parachuted in out of the clear blue sky and all of a sudden started doing these things. He had been for three years receiving the prophecies and the, um, the foretelling um, of John the Baptist, and he has been demonstrating that he is Messiah by the acts that he is doing. And so Jesus really has answered this question already. He's answered it numerous times. He's spent the last three years answering the question and showing by his actions that he is the Messiah. And so in bringing John the Baptist into view here, he is putting these religious leaders into a tough situation, and they realize it instantly. They realize instantaneously that they're in a tough spot. That's why it says in uh, verse 5, they discussed it among themselves. And so you can kind of see them like all coming together like in a wedge, you know, to confront Jesus. And they ask him, "Where where did you get your authority for this? And Jesus says, hey, tell me about John the Baptist. Was he from God or did he make it up himself? And all of a sudden the wedge like turns and it becomes a huddle and they kind of murmur to themselves, you know, as they're discussing what the next play in the playbook might be. 
They're talking it over. Verse uh, 5 continues. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, then he will ask, why didn't you believe him? In other words, if they say, yeah, we believe John the Baptist was a prophet and we believe the message he brought was from God. Then Jesus is going to turn right to them and said, well, you know you weren't baptized by John. You didn't identify with his teaching. In fact, you opposed him just as you opposed me. And so they say, if we say, yeah, John the Baptist was great, Jesus is going to say, then why weren't you his disciples? Why didn't you accept his baptism? But on the other side of the coin, the, the horns of the dilemma that they are on are just as painful the other direction. Notice verse 6, but if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us. See, the people that Jesus, who followed Jesus did so in part because John the Baptist had started that movement. He created the crowd. He got the ball rolling and everyone who was following Jesus either came to him in part because of John's ministry or agreed with the ministry of John. And so they're in a tough spot here. If they acknowledge John's authority as a spiritual leader, then they've undercut their own, they've undermined their own spiritual authorities. How can they be spokesmen for God if they saw a spokesman of God and they didn't follow him? And yet if they say, no, he was just a guy who made up his own stuff, people aren't going to like that. They believe John was a prophet. They're going to turn and reject these people from the authority they have. And so they decide to punt keep the football metaphors going. In verse 7, they drop back and punt, all right, which is a controlled turnover, right? Verse 7, so they answered, we don't know where it was from, all right? So they say, balls in your court, Jesus. We're not going to answer the question. And so Jesus finishes his discourse by saying this in verse 8, Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Since they did not want to answer the question, about the authority of John, whether his baptism and his teaching were from God or created by men, by himself. Since they wouldn't answer the question, Jesus says, I am not going to bow to your authority either. If you can't answer legitimate questions, you're spiritual people with spiritual authority, and yet you can't answer a legitimate question about whether this is a spiritual man whose message is from God or not. And you're supposed to be warning the people against wolves. And if John the Baptist made up his own stuff and he was from men, then he is a wolf. And so he's saying, if you're not going to exercise the authority that you have because you are earthly authorities with supposedly spiritual authority, then Jesus says, there's no reason for me to tell you where I got my authority from. Jesus refused to answer the question. He refused to prove his authority to people who thought they had authority. That's what this whole section is designed to do. By bringing in John, Jesus in the back door authenticates his message because it fulfilled Old Testament scripture and it was exactly what John said would happen. And so Jesus brings it in through the back door but he fails and refuses to acknowledge their question. Why? Here's why. If someone calls into question your right to be somewhere, where's your backstage pass? How did you get into this room without a key? What are they doing? They are saying, I have authority in this situation. You don't have authority. And if you answer me, you're showing that you're at least under my authority or somebody's authority, right? Whenever somebody calls you on the, in, on the question of authority, they are trying to exercise authority. Only people who are in charge can ask other people why they're doing what they're doing. And that's what these guys are trying to do. They're trying to get control back of the situation. 
Even if Jesus answers the question well and says, yes, my authority is from heaven because I've done these miracles and John pointed to me and I've fulfilled all this Old Testament scripture. Even if he says all those things, which he has already in his ministry, but even if he says them now, in a sense, he's putting himself under these human authorities. He's acknowledging that they have authority over him by giving them the authentication that they seek. And there was no need to do that because he is God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah, the promised one who was to come. And for those reasons, he has authority over how people worship. That's what these passages, what this passage is teaching. Jesus has authority over how people worship, and he used this authority over worship when he entered Jerusalem. But here's the meaning for us. He remains in authority over worship. The temple is gone, as Jesus prophesied it would be. The high priests are gone. The elders of the people are gone. The teachers of the law are gone. And yet the worship of God remains. The movement that Jesus began when he was preaching the gospel message, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has come, that movement continues. It's what we call the church. And the Bible tells us that Jesus has not seceded any authority at all. The authority he exercised over worship in the temple is authority he still has over how worship is conducted today. And Jesus made a big deal out of this before he left this earth. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a passage that probably every Christian knows or nearly every Christian knows, because it gives the Great Commission. It tells the disciples, tells us what we are to do. We are to go make disciples and baptize them and teach them and so on, right? But it begins with these words in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. Jesus is saying, you don't need to go to a nation and get them to give you credibility before you can give the gospel message. You don't have to go to the government and get your credentials to go in and preach the gospel and give people spiritual truth. Jesus is saying, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. So just go do what I told you to do. He retains the authority that he demonstrated in this passage over how people worship today. And another passage of Scripture makes this even, even or just as clear. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we, we read these words. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When the Bible says he is appointed head over the church, it's telling us he has authority over how we worship even though we're not in the temple, even though we're not Jewish, even though we aren't chief priests or scribes, we follow Jesus because he has authority over how people worship. And so what do we do with this? What's the big idea for us to take away? It's the submit to the authority of Jesus in your worship and in our worship. Submit to the authority of Jesus in your worship, I mean that personally, and in our worship as a church. Let me develop these two ideas together. First of all, submit to the authority of Jesus in your worship. This is your personal worship. This is the way you go about 
talking to God and ministering for God and receiving truth from God. You don't have the right, and neither do I, and nobody does, to create our own worship experience, to do it our own way. Jesus has authority over worship, and so we better figure out what he wants from us, right? And so that begins by believing in him because he is Lord. Worship begins when a person turns from doing their own thing and following their own ways, from sinning, to acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ and saying, I need your salvation. That's why Jesus came. He came to give his life as a ransom for us so that we could put away sin and follow him. And so if you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is where things need to begin for you. Jesus isn't pleading for you in a sense, saying, you know, please try me and, you know, ask me into your heart. Jesus is authoritatively saying, repent of your sins and believe the gospel message. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, let me urge you to follow the instructions, the commands of Christ and become a Christian. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who commands all of us to repent and follow him because he is authority in worship. A couple of passages of scripture that talk about Christ as the ultimate authority, which means there are no other, no other gods and all other religions are false. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, God said, turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And echoing this claim himself, Jesus said in John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you want to know God? Do you want to worship God? Do you want to escape this life and escape the wrath of God at the end of it? You need to turn and follow Jesus, submit to his authority in your worship by believing in him because he is Lord. Secondly, we submit to the authority of Jesus in our personal worship by identifying publicly with him because he is Lord. By identifying publicly with him because he is Lord. And this is where baptism comes in. Why do we follow the um, ordinance called baptism? It's a public demonstration of someone's faith in Christ, saying, I am following Jesus as my Lord. This is why Jesus brings up the baptism of Jesus, not just his teaching. Everyone who accepted John's message was baptized to publicly identify themselves as being part of this messianic movement. And Jesus continued that tradition by telling his disciples, I have a baptism as well, and you need to take all of my followers and see to it that they publicly identify with me. And then once a person publicly identifies with Jesus through baptism, they are considered part of the church. Notice this passage from Acts chapter 2. I'm going to just sample little pieces of it. It's from uh, Peter's Pentecostal sermon, his sermon on the day of Pentecost. From Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, and then I'm going to dip down into verse 36 and verse 41. But it says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by, to, uh, by God, to you by miracles, signs, and wonders. There it is. Where did Jesus get this authority? He got it from God. How do we know? Because he did miracles, signs, and wonders. But I continue. Which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
And then the Bible says this, those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's good. He has authority over worship. But because he has authority over worship, there are some more steps you need to take. You need to follow him in believer's baptism because that's your public pronouncement that you are a follower of Jesus and you are submitted to his authority. And you need to be part of a Bible teaching church. And I'll get to that in a minute. But the church is the public um, identity, the public uh, presentation of the body of Christ. And if you say, I'm following Jesus, but you've never been baptized and joined the church, you're not submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. And this brings up the next point, which I've already alluded to, which is this, by worshiping faithfully with God's people in a Bible-teaching church. Did you notice in our passage how often the idea of teaching comes up? Let me just show it to you. It happens twice, and it's not insignificant. In chapter 19, or yeah, Luke chapter 19, verse 47, it says, Every day he was teaching at the temple. What did Jesus' ministry look like? It looked like him opening the Word of God and giving the Word of God on a regular basis. And people who were following him coming to hear what he had to say. Drop down to chapter 20, verse 1, where it says, One day Jesus was doing what? He was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. This is the core identity of what a church does. People who follow Jesus Christ come to hear teaching. They come to receive instruction from the Word of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're submitted to his authority and worship, then you need to not only identify publicly with him through baptism and become part of a church, you need to become part of a Bible teaching church where teaching the word of God is the focus of the ministry. And there are all kinds of ways in which churches have strayed from the teaching of the word. Entertainment and group therapy have become the marks of many churches in our country and in our culture. There are places all over this county that are calling themselves churches who are putting on quite a show this morning and are doing things that are very therapeutic, helping people feel better about their lives. And I'm not opposed to good shows, and I'm not opposed to working on your life and feeling better, but what I'm saying is this. The the core thing about a church that's important is, does it teach the Word of God? And if you are submitted to Christ in worship, that should be your heart. I want to hear what God's Word has to say. And so if you're a follower of Christ, you identify with Christ, but you're not part of a Bible-teaching church, I think you can see from what I do, what I've done here, I do this every Sunday. We do this every Sunday. The elders of this church, we teach the Word of God Because that's what Jesus did, and he is the authority over our worship. So this is what it means to, in part, to submit to the authority of Jesus in your worship. Are you submitting to him? But there's more to it, because we as a group also need to submit to his authority. And so let's talk about that. Submit to the authority of Jesus in our worship. How does this work? Well, just a few ideas here. First of all, by practicing his ordinances in his way. We believe that two ordin- there are two ordinances of Scripture, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate one of them in just a moment here. We believe that God gave these to the church. They are to be practiced in the church. 
And the Bible gives instruction about how every church should practice them. I'm going to read these verses to you in a minute. In fact, more than these verses. But I want to take a moment to comment on them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, the scriptures describe how we should practice the ordinance of communion when it says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Why do we say you need to be a member of a church of like faith and practice to us? Because of these words. Because of the warning of this passage that says, if you eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy way, you've sinned against God. And we can go into discussion, and I'm sure someday, if the Lord wills, I'll, I'll preach on 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll get to this passage, and I'll talk about the abuses of the Lord's Supper that were happening. But if you come to the Lord's table and you're, you haven't followed him in believer's baptism, you're not part of a local church, then you're not practicing the ordinances in God's way. And, and, and by the way, since I'm talking about how we do this in our worship, let me just say this. When I uh, occasionally take um, vacations with my family, we go to churches and, and sometimes those churches are practicing the Lord's Supper and they distribute the elements in a different way than we do. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I, I got to tell you, it brings pause to my heart when they say nothing in terms of examining yourself, when they say nothing about identifying with Jesus Christ before you take the elements. Same thing with baptism. There are a, a big movement right now is spontaneous baptisms. Let's just get everybody baptized right now. We'll give you a t-shirt and you don't have to do anything, Okay. Well, baptism is an ordinance of the church. It needs to be done with reverence, with care. Why? Because Jesus is the authority. So we need to make sure that we baptize people who have come to believe in him and are under his authority. We need to make sure that when we come around the Lord's table, we do it in a reverent way, and that it's the people of God understanding what they are doing. This is why we observe the ordinances the way that we do. Secondly, in terms of submitting to the authority of Jesus in our worship, we need to do that by following the leaders of this church as we follow Christ. Just as the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they, they went off the path, and this happens in churches too, sadly. Sometimes the duly appointed elders of the church don't follow Christ the way that they should. And a lot of American Christians, I've found, have a suspicion about human leaders, probably because they've seen abuses or they've seen people who we're hypocritical or disobedient to the Lord. I get that, but let's get this. Jesus is the one who set up human authorities to lead his church. And the scriptures are clear that as long as we're following Christ and seeking to do his will, God's people should follow. Look at this passage from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where the scripture says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, Peter says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, as a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Jesus is Lord of the church. 
He is the Lord over worship. He has authority over your worship and my worship individually and our worship as the church. And part of what he has set up are human shepherds, men, godly men who meet the qualifications, who are designed to watch over the spiritual growth and the spiritual development of the flock, to warn people of sin, to call them from their sin to repentance, and to teach God's word clearly. Are you a member of a Bible-teaching church? Are you following the leadership of the church? If not, these are the next steps for you. The next actions for you are to do what Jesus said and align yourself with a gospel-teaching, Bible-teaching church that has proper human shepherds leading and following Christ. If you are a member of our church, but you're, you kind of graze in other pastures, like you... You know, I, I mean, this is how things work these days in many cases. That there are people in our church who think of this as our church, that this is their home church. They may be members, they may not be members, but they come maybe once a month, maybe once every six weeks. They're here and then they're not. And I get that people travel and, you know, people are doing that more and more. I'm not saying anything about that. But what I'm saying is I, I sense very clearly that there are people who identify as followers of Jesus Christ, but on any given Sunday, it's up in the air whether they're going to go to church or not. And my answer to that is, who's the Lord of the church? And what does he say about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together? A lot more I could say about this, but I'll cut it off here and just urge you to submit to the authority of Jesus in your worship and our worship. He is Lord. And as his subjects, as his servants... As those he has redeemed by his own blood, we are under his authority. So let's submit and let's do what Jesus commands us to do.